Thank you. We're going to read God's Word. Join me together from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 1 through to verse 11. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is locked in down there. Won't move that. Anyway, please do have God's Word open in front of you. Thanks for reading, Rachel. We are, yeah, as, well, next week's the last week. So this is obviously the second last week. We've been trekking through. If you haven't been with us, if you're, you're new tonight, you're watching over the stream and you uh, haven't been with us, We've been trekking through this letter, 1 Corinthians, and Paul's at the point where he's dealing with a bunch of different kind of specific things, and he's going from one thing to the other. Tonight, it's about lawsuits, obviously, and so we'll be dealing with that. But please do have God's Word open. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig into it, because this passage is hard, but we delight in God's Word, and we ask that He is at work within us. So please do pray with me. Our loving God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it has come to us, that it contains truth about who you are, who we are, and what it means to be your disciple, a disciple of the Lord Jesus. I ask that I speak clearly that, your word, that my words are yours, and that whether we're here in the room or across the screen, that you help us to engage with what it is that you are trying to teach us and trying to shape us into being. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I ask, if you've been wronged by someone, You've been wronged by someone, whatever it may be, and particularly been wronged by another Christian for, for something. What's your response? What's your response when that kind of happens? Let me give you a couple of scenarios. It kind of starts a little bit intense, but imagine you've been cheated by 10 grand from someone, another Christian at church. It's a lot of money. Like say you had an investment that you kind of go in went in with them, but then somebody turned, turned a bit sour, you can't get your money out, they've kind of gone a bit sus on you, something's happened, they've been in your home group for six years, they go to this church, what do you do? Or what's the response that kind of comes up within you? Better call Saul, for those that watch that, don't do that. 
What if you've, you've uh, got a car mechanic who's a Christian? Trust them. They've been doing your work with you on your car for the last couple of years. But it's time for a major service. They quote you four grand. You go, oh, man, gee, I guess my car's a little bit old. You pay the money. You find out later it was only worth a couple of hundred. Again, they're from your church. What do you do? What's your response? What kind of dwells up within you? What about, we're now in July, and some of us go to supper each week. What if you've been going to supper each week, and you're paying for your mate week after week after week, and they say, well, they'll get you next week, but it's still next week, and they haven't got you. What dwells up within you? What kind of emotion uh, does that evoke? What's your response? Now, obviously, there's... Levels of severity there. We're just talking about financial things. There could be a whole bunch of other things that could happen where someone has wronged you. But if you're like me, there's a sense of kind of justice, fairness, what's right and what's wrong that, that rises up and we want to seek justice. And in a sense, that's tr- good. We want to be people of justice. But we live in a culture that celebrates rights uh, kind of above all else. Like for good reason, like we have a right to education, we have a right to a fair wage, we kind of demand our personal freedoms. Then you've got those kind of colloquial sayings like, you know, you do you, which is basically saying you have a right to be whoever you want to be, you be yourself. The cultural narrative is our rights are held up really high. And if someone has offended you or wronged you in some way, shape or form, then you have the right to pursue remedy doesn't matter the collateral damage that happens in the meantime. Now, that's a caricature of our culture, but I think that's nonetheless got a ring of truth to it. And in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the theme that is particularly played out is that issue in the context of a lawsuit, between a dispute between two Christians. So tonight we're going to be exploring particularly what are the outcomes uh, that can happen with a dispute. What are we seeking Uh, to do and and not do. Please do have the Bible in front of you. What we're going to do is is work through the passage as we usually do, but let me kind of paint the scene, kind of overview Corinth and the church, uh, the courts, by looking at the ancient world of Corinth and a little bit of the letter itself to get an idea of what's going on here. Now, if you're in Corinth and there's a lawsuit going on, it is really public. That picture on the screen is what they call the Bema, and it's a place in kind of the center of Corinth where, amongst other things, lawsuits will be heard and adjudicated upon. What that meant is, no matter the case, it was very much in the public sphere, right? This is kind of the ancient equivalent of social media. You know, you watch the Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp case, or the the Roe versus Wade overturning, like these kind of cases are very much in our public eye. The Bema was that for Corinth, very public. Secondly, in Corinth, and I think we can resonate with this, when it comes to lawsuits, the richer you are, the higher standing you have, the better lawyer you get, the better chance you have of winning. Now, we get that a little bit, but in Corinth, it's that on steroids, right? Because there is a a situation of patronage and corruption Um, social status, all these kind of things, which means that the system itself is bent towards the rich and the powerful. One writer, his name is Deacrosostom, doesn't matter. He's a guy from the first century. He says about Corinth 
that Corinth had innumerable lawyers preventing and perverting justice. This is the Corinthian justice system. Okay? Now with that in mind, when you look at the passage, what can we piece together? Have a look. I won't read the verses. I'll just point out a few things. Firstly, in verses 1 and 6, the issue is between two Christians. Okay? We're talking John against Austin, right? But in Corinthian terms, not you two, but you get the idea. People in the same church. Second, in verses 1, 4, and 6, we see that these people in Corinth, they've ignored going to the church to seek justice. They've gone outside the church to the secular courts. And they're seeking justice through that system. Thirdly, when you look at verses 3 and 4, we see the nature of the trial is trivial. It's talking about kind of the ordinary things of life. The Greek word is literally the ordinary things uh, of life. You know, we're talking about building a house, your plumber, uh, some kind of honour, money issue, fixing your car, your cart, if it may be, in Corinth. You know, it's, like, it's the ordinary issues of life. And then when you have a look at verse 8, we read that the accuser, or if you're into legal terms, the plaintiff, is doing wrong. In some way, they're using this legal system in Corinth for their advantage, exploiting their Christian fellow brother in this case. So in summary, the picture here is a fellow Christian has taken another one to the secular courts over a civil matter. It's a very public affair, and the motives, at a minimum, are not quite for justice, but in some way exploitation. That's the picture. That's the kind of image, the setting that we've stepped into. Now, I want to be really careful and say what this passage is not saying. It's kind of the pastoral heart, in a sense, coming out here. This is what the passage is not saying. What we're talking about is civil matters, not criminal matters. Paul is not addressing criminal matters here. In the last especially decade, but we know it's been going on for hundreds of years, the church has been at fault for cover-ups or not going through the proper legal routes. Paul would be appalled. He would be absolutely appalled if we were to use this as a pretext for cover-ups, institutional silence, the protection of abusive leaders or Christians whenever serious allegations are made. That would be the absolute opposite of what Paul is trying to say here. What he's talking about are ordinary matters, the civil matters, not criminal. Secondly, the, old, the New Testament is not against the secular courts. Christians are not like, well, stuff the secular courts. When, no, we are for the secular courts. Paul, in Romans 13, he writes it at a similar kind of time. He says we are to submit to the secular authorities. You can have a read of that. He will explain it better there than just that one sentence. Um, as Christians, we're not against the secular courts. Thirdly, we read that God throughout the Bible is very clear about his heart for justice. This passage is not trying to say sweep justice, sweep whatever the issue is under the carpet. We're not going to deal with it. No, it's the how can we deal with it in the right way? When is it that we should be pursuing it? When not? God has a real heart for justice. He's very upset at his people. Have a look at Amos 5. He's really upset at his people when they don't pursue justice. So this passage, it's talking about personal civil matters, not criminal. We're not against the secular courts. 
and God has a heart for ensuring and establishing justice. I just want to make that clear. Because if you get those kind of thoughts as we go through it, then we're not talking about those things. Now, now that we're on the same page, sorry if that was laborious, that's important to say. Let's go into the passage. We're talking about dealing with disputes within the church. The passage is on the screen. And as it was read before, I think you could have felt Paul in no uncertain terms is saying, don't sue your Christian brother or sister. At the beginning, he starts with like, how dare you? Do you dare to do this? Right? It's very stark kind of language. Now, he doesn't go on to give a remedy. He actually goes on to give reasons why not to sue your fellow Christian brother or sister. And he gives three specific reasons about why not to do that. The first one comes up in verses 2 and 3. He says along the lines of, don't you know that you'll judge the world and judge angels? You know, surely you can deal with issues. No, we didn't know that, Paul. <laughs> but what he's saying there is, uh, he's not trying to talk about the particulars um, of what that means, uh, but that you're going to deal with far greater things of importance and significance. Surely you can deal with a trivial. If you want to know about those things later, come and ask me. There's a lot to say, but that's not what Paul's point here is. What he's kind of saying is if you were like a billionaire and you lost $5 and you spent days trying to find this $5, it's inconsequential to you as a billionaire. Is that kind of logic is being applied here. Next, Paul says in verse 4, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way is scorned in the church? You go into the secular courts, they have a different ethic. They have a different standard that they live by. They have different ways in the way of God and the way of his people. Do you not care for the way of Jesus? And the in, They do not care for the way of Jesus, nor have the interests of the church at heart. So it's actually unhelpful to go to them for these kind of matters. And an analogy could be like a tax accountant who asks a visual arts expert to get comment on their tax accounting. But that person has a different agenda, has a different... Um, qualifications, it's completely different kind of things. Then finally, Paul says in verse 5, is no one wise enough to judge a dispute between you believers? Like you remember the Corinthians, they're like, man, we're wise, we're spiritual, we're the mature, and you can't handle the petty issues. Come on, guys. This is not just an issue of the individual, this is the church. Church, you have foregone your responsibilities here. So the direction Paul is trying to head at for, these, for the Corinthian church is they're mishandling these issues by outsourcing it um, for those who shouldn't have a say. Sure, there's a dispute. It probably needs to be dealt with, but deal with it in the church in a healthy, Christ-like fashion. Now, for most of us, that probably sounds all a little bit left field. I don't know of any situation where we're taking each other to court. I asked Ange, do you know of any situation where that's happened at Nawe in the 25 years and he couldn't think of one? So it's a bit like, oh, okay, oh, good, we're, we're good here. And in a sense, good, true. Celebrate the fact that we haven't taken each other to court. That's a positive, uh, that's a positive thing. Take it also as a bit like preventative medicine and immunisation. Don't go off suing one another at Nawe Baptist Church. Not helpful. We're on the right page. Keep going. That's good. But... There is a greater issue that's going on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it is directly relevant to us. 
This passage is calling us to seek reconciliation, not retribution. Don't seek retribution, seek seek reconciliation with your brothers and sisters and do that through the church. As I was saying at the beginning, when we've been wronged, we have a kind of natural tendency to want to get back, to get back at whoever has wronged us. And if our intent, it moves from reconciliation towards retribution, then we've crossed a very dangerous line. For example, if someone isn't paying you back for supper and you want to go calling them out, you want to kind of make a scene of them in some way, shape or form, you want to highlight that you're generous and they're a bit of a tool, that's moved from reconciliation to retribution. Perhaps someone's wronged you about your character. You want to set the record straight. Maybe you want to bring them down too. That's not reconciliation, that's retribution. Maybe someone's some, done something against you and your heart is revenge. Do you want your rights exercised and you don't care for the collateral damage to whoever it may be? That's moved from reconciliation to retribution. Now in the context of the Corinthian church, they're behaving like the world because that's what the world is doing. That's what the Corinthian justice system was doing. For But for the Christian, our reaction is not to get even. Our reaction is to seek good. Now, of course, when there's particular situations, there needs to be wisdom that's applied. That's not being chucked out the door here. Um, We we do need to seek wisdom. But when it's on these civil matters, we're called to seek reconciliation and not retribution for the church, through the church. If you want to hear more about that, Matthew 18 is a bit of a passage and there's lots of things that we could explore for for another sermon, but that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, there's another kind of overriding reason or perhaps a foundational reason that Paul is so determined, right? He is so keen to push them away from this kind of um, dispute process of suing one another. By dealing with issues within the church, it maintains our witness to Christ to the world, to a watching world. It maintains our positive witness, right? If we're going around hanging out our dirty laundry to the world, that's not going to be helpful. In more particular terms, right, if this church is going around, they're suing, they're attacking one another, a fellow brother and sister, what's it going to show to the, to the society around us? At best, we're just the same. At worst, who on earth would want to be part of that church? No one. If you're going to get sued, you're going to be attacked, you're going to be exploited, that's not just neutral, that is negative. They're going to be repulsed by Jesus. Like take, for example, uh, Elizabeth and I. We're not suing each other. Um, But say if we were like fighting all the time, publicly, we're always yelling at each other, we're upset, we're always at each other's throats in the public sphere. Um, We're not like that in private. (laughs) I love my wife. She's beautiful. But say we're doing that in public. What would happen if if that were the case? And we said to people, marriage is amazing. Come hang out with us. Come on holiday with us. You know, be with us. You're like, no, I don't really want to be with you. Marriage looks terrible. Going out on a holiday with you is sounds like the worst thing in the world. 
You transplant that to what Paul is saying about the church here. The way we behave to our other fellow Christian brothers and sisters has a direct influence and impact on our witness to Christ to our neighbours. If we're fighting, we're seeking retribution with one another, especially over these small issues, we soil our witness. We ruin our witness. It's not just simply a poor one to the world. Friends, we seek reconciliation within the church. And that when we do that, we're going to remain unified. That's been a big ethic of what Paul is trying to get at. It's not about avoiding justice. It's about seeking justice in the right way for the good of one another and for the witness of Christ to the glory of God. That's the front half of the passage. As Paul moves on from verse 7, you see he kind of raises the stakes. He raises the stakes a little bit to say sometimes we're going to need to renounce our rights for the good of others. Paul is asking, where really is your allegiance? Is your allegiance to selfish ambition or is it to Jesus? Have a read with me from verse 7 of chapter 6. The very fact you have lawsuits among you means you're already completely defeated. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and you do wrong and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. Corinthians, you are so selfish. You are so prideful. All that matters is your rights and that they're met. Who cares for your brother and sister? Who cares for the witness of the church? Actually, instead of that, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Why not live for Jesus and not yourself? We're called to be people who are characterized about love for God and about love for one another, not characterized by selfish pursuit. As one commentator put it, he said that Paul would like to exchange their relentless pursuit of honor and material advantage for a sacrificial love for each other. What that means in reality is that sometimes, perhaps often, we're going to need to be sacrificial. We're going to need to sacrifice something. In this case, renouncing your rights for the good of others. And of course that's not fun. That's not necessarily easy. It might not be natural. It's certainly a spirit-led thing. Now, I think that I'm a fairly somewhat easygoing person, but I found myself really reacting against this passage. Like I was given all the if, buts, and maybes about all the way, no, it doesn't apply here, it doesn't apply there. Feel the weight of the passage, Matt. Feel the way to the passage, church. This is calling us to live a sacrificial life, to perhaps be wronged, to perhaps be cheated. And yes, it will hurt. It's going to take sacrifice. But who is the one who lived a sacrificial life? Who is the one who allowed himself to be wronged? Who is the one who allowed himself to be cheated, to be scorned, to be mocked? to certainly not have his rights be met. The one who had the right to have all the glory, all the honor as a king, to never stoop low to be a servant, but clothed himself, became a human, lived a servant, sacrificial life, and then died on the cross, rose again in victory. Of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is the, the one who paved the sacrificial way of service to others. Sure, we're not doormats. We're not against justice, but we imitate Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, ones who follow him, we're called to follow in the sacrificial footsteps of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. As Jesus said in the Gospels, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, yes, it's going to take sacrifice. And at times, that's renouncing your rights. The rights will not be upheld, but we love God, we love others, and we know that he will sort the rest. In the end, we will be on the side of victory. If not in this life, certainly in the life to come. And God will be honoured. Now, I said before that in this back half, Paul is really raising the stakes. He's corrected them on how to not go about sorting disputes. He's reminded them of the sacrificial way of Jesus. And now he's about to portray their actions in a very dark light. Have a look with me over verses 7 to the front half of 9 again. And I'm going to emphasize the word wrong. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and you do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you see what Paul's doing there? Maybe you could be like Jesus and be wronged. But in fact, you do wrong. You are the wrongdoer. And let me remind you who the wrongdoers are. And then he goes to this list that we're about to read. (laughs) That's a strong word, right? When you fight with each other, when you exploit, when you seek personal advantage, especially over your Christian brother or sister, you are doing wrong. You're behaving like a wrongdoer. Then Paul goes on and he gives the list, and it is an abrasive list from where we left off. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, not any of those wrongdoers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul has just bundled up all those disputes all that exploitation of your Christian brother and sister suing one another into that list. Now, the things of that list we've spoken about in this series in a number of occasions, um, Paul is not interested in going to the particulars of what's going on there, so I won't go into the detail either. But I want to pull out four things that are kind of characteristic of those lists, that list. Remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, the church of God in Corinth. He's writing this to Christians, to people who have Jesus as their Lord, who people who are following in the way of Jesus. The cutting critique is given to Christians. Secondly, the things in here aren't meant to be contentious. They're clear. The third thing is there's a whole array of sins here which are positioned one next to, one, one next to the other. What we might consider a trivial sin, being a slanderer, is put right next to being an adulterer. They're all wrong. Put right next to one another, in a sense equal on that list. The other thing to note about them all is that they are actions. They are things that a person does. Now, not necessarily addressing someone's desires, 
So a Christian may have desires for one of these things. Let's pull out sexual immorality for a moment. They might desire something of that nature, but not choose to walk that way. That's not what's in question here. The question is the action that Paul is critiquing. Now, that's an uncomfortable list. It's not meant to be read with delight. I don't, Paul, I don't think Paul read it with a, wrote it with a smile. We don't delight in those things. But then Paul goes on, and he says in verse 11, and that is what's, what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, which just means you're made right, you're set apart for God's purposes, and you were justified, meaning you were made right by God, in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Now, is that comment meant to be read positively or negatively? Is it a positive comment or a negative comment? Is Paul celebrating that they've been made new? Or is he condemning them for how far that they've fallen? It's both. He is celebrating the fact that, they're new, that they've been made new, that they're washed. But he is highlighting the fact that they're not living that way at all. That is who you are, but you're not living it. The Corinthians, yes, you're saved for sure. You're washed, sanctified, justified. You're in God's family. Yes and amen, but you're not living that way. Now, I often think in kind of football terms, and at the moment, it's transfer season. So people transfer from one team through to another, and Rowan is smirking at the moment because one of his favorite players, Richarlison, has moved from Everton to Spurs. So two teams in the English Premier League. Now, for Richarlison, this guy who's transferred from one to the other... He's now not going to go around wearing an Everton jersey. He wears a Spurs jersey. He doesn't go to the Everton team talks. He doesn't go to the Everton training sessions. And when Everton come to play Spurs, he's not suddenly going to start scoring own goals. No, he's changed teams. He is now, well, hopefully. (laughs) He's now plays for Spurs. And if the Spurs manager saw him doing all of those things, all that that guy would need to do is say Richarlison. You're wearing the white Spurs jersey, mate. You're a Spurs player. Let's go. I think that's what Paul's doing here. You're sanctified. You're justified. You're in the family of God. Let's go. Stop being a wrongdoer. So I think, friends, the natural, the kind of obvious application of that is Paul's communing to the Corinthians and to us to repent, to turn to Jesus. And can can I say, firstly, to those who are investigating Jesus, and I said before this is written to Christians, which is true, not taking that away, but the Bible is written so that you can know who Jesus is and you can turn to him and find forgiveness and life. Don't try to change your actions and be all these, like stop doing all these things. Come to Jesus. Investigate him, turn, find forgiveness and life. And then Jesus, the Holy Spirit in the church, will help you to walk the way of Christ. You're called to repent and turn to Jesus. Now, if you have done that, if you are a Christian, then stop living in sin. And I'm saying that to myself as much as, I think this is just what the the Bible is saying. I'm with us. I'm in this category. Don't be deceived. Sin, it looks nice. It's glamorous. The world of sin is full of fun. It's alluring. I live in it with you. I feel it with you but is fleeting and is dangerous. 
And do not lose the weight of Paul's words here. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Come to Jesus, repent of your sin. Yes, you are saved. You're part of the family of God. Don't fear your salvation. We can never out-sin God's grace, but we sure can spit in his face when we continue to sin, but call ourselves a follower of him. So confess your sin. He's faithful and just. He forgives us of all our unrighteousness, for sure. But instead, friends, let's do what this is positively calling us towards. We're called to live out our true identity, to live out the fact that we are adopted, chosen children of God. We're washed of our old way and made new. Indeed, this whole kind of book, we've been talking about what it looks like to live distinctly Christian in a non-Christian world. We're called to live, out, to, to live out our identity in Christ. Now, of course, the particular applications to that, Paul's gone through heaps. We've gone through one today in terms of lawsuits and uh, seeking reconciliation, not retribution. But this is something we live out in all ways every day. So can I suggest just a practice for you? A practice to help you remember to live out your new identity because you've been washed by God. When you have a shower tonight, and perhaps every time you do, there's nothing special about the shower, but just remember that you are washed, that you have a new identity in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, the old is washed away. You now live the forgiven, beautiful, hopeful, joyful life of Jesus, but you also live the sacrificial way of Jesus. As you physically wash yourself, nothing extra spiritual is going to happen. Just remember that you are spiritually washed. Live out that new identity day by day to the glory of God and the blessing of your soul. Brothers and sisters, whether it be lawsuits or in how we naturally want to seek retribution against a Christian brother or sister, remember that we're called to follow in the sacrificial way of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, together, individually, as a church, we will remain unified. We will be a positive witness of Jesus to our world. And in all we do, we're called to live out that new identity that we have in Christ for the glory of God, for the growth of our church, for the blessing of our neighbor. Let us together continue to do that until Jesus calls us home or he returns. Let me pray. Our loving God, we do thank you for your word. And even in the hard things, we know that you love us dearly, that you're calling us into the way of life. Thank you, God, that you love us, that you discipline us as your children like a loving father does. So, God, we ask that you continue to shape us into likeness of Christ, that we'll continue to live his sacrificial way for the good of each other, for your positive witness to the world and to your glory. Holy Spirit, please be at work in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.